Let's pray. Lord, we are almost home. Our life is but a vapor, and it is in your hands. But we're not home yet. And so, Lord, we need to know how to conduct ourselves during the remaining time we have here on earth. So, Lord, give us your wisdom. Lord, hold before us this morning Christian traits and virtues that would help us to live in such a way that when we do arrive at home, we'll be told, welcome, good, faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's what we want. So this morning, Lord, please speak to us so that we'll get there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. So this is our eighth sermon in a series that we've been in on Philippians. So we've been through chapter 1, through most of chapter 2, and now we're coming to the very end of Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in the last two paragraphs going from verse 19 to the end of the chapter in verse 30. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Examples are important things for us. I do some part-time teaching at a high school over in Oak Ridge, and I'm shocked at how these high school students, most of them juniors and seniors, they're on the precipice of college and career choices and all of these monumental life decisions that need to be made. And they are completely ignorant as to what kind of jobs are out there, what things are important in a job, very unacquainted with the world as it is. And they're clueless, many of them frightened and they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing, and they feel like they're behind all their other peers, and everyone else has it figured out, but not me. But very few of them do have it figured out. And one thing that I often tell them to do is I'll say, okay, pick a job field that you think you might be interested in. Okay, it's not like you're not marrying this job. It just seems like, okay, these are my interests. That seems like a direction I might want to go. And then ask your parents, your teachers, uh, your parents' friends, your, your, your friends' parents, uh, if they know anybody who works in that field. So you, you think you might want to be an engineer. Great. Ask your teachers if they know someone who does engineering. Uh, ask your, your friends if any of their parents do engineering. Ask your parents if any of their friends do engineering. And if they do, reach out to that person, establish a contact with them, and just ask them, hey, do you mind if I sit down with you, have lunch, maybe give you a phone call, uh, and just ask you some questions about what your, what your job looks like. So, 
What do you do from day to day? What does your day to day schedule look like? Does it differ from day to day or is it pretty much the same? How flexible is your job? Are you chained to a desk or do you get to go see your kids' games and stuff like that if you need to during a work day? Uh, do, do you know anybody else that works in this field that would be willing to talk to me? How did you get to where you are? Was that a good path? Or if I wanted to get to where you are, should I take a different path? Uh, That gives the student, instead of these abstract ideas about what engineers do, it gives them a concrete idea, an actual perspective on what the day-to-day life of an engineer is like. And then if they speak to several of that guy's friends, now they get several examples in front of them. Oh, okay, I have a really good idea now having talked to these several people, what it is that engineers do. And now I can decide if I want to pursue that or no, that doesn't seem like it's for me. Uh, What does that do? Well, it takes an abstract idea that this student has and it gives it flesh. Uh, The idea kind of is incarnate before them in this person who actually lives out this idea from day to day. And so it gives them a better idea themselves of, okay, what is this life actually like doing this job, being in this career? Uh, Same thing if you're newly married. You want to have a great marriage. Okay, well, find somebody who has a great marriage and spend a lot of time with them. Right? Like you're a new parent and you just want to be a stellar parent. Best thing to do. Find people that are just killing it in terms of parenting and spend as much time in their home as you possibly can. Best thing you can do if you want to be a good parent. Find an example to emulate, right? Find someone who you can put in front of you and say, yeah, I want to be like you. That's what examples do for us. Uh, They they take abstract notions, things we might have read in books, and they put flesh and bone and, and real life on them. And it lives before you as something that you can emulate. Examples are vital for us. And if you're to look up pretty much any sermon on the text that I'm about to speak to you, you're not going to be able to miss the word example. It's what everybody talks about when they look at this text. Timothy and Epaphroditus are being held up for the church at Philippi, and now for us, as examples. People to emulate, people to follow after. Be like these people. However, after the sort of the grand hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, 1 through 11... You know, had this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He, he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, suffered death on a cross, and now is gloriously exalted. Huge text, right? Uh, the text we looked at last time in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Glorious text. Compared to those, this sort of missions update, trips that are going to be happening soon, back and forth between Rome and Philippi, it can seem sort of everyday, sort of mundane compared to those texts. Actually, one commentator said, uh, it's easy to view this material as mundane, which in a sense it is. And to neglect it, therefore, as of little import, which it is not. This is the stuff of which real letters are made. And it's true. And if you've been with us in our time in Philippians, you know that this congregation and Paul, I've said this a million times, are so dear to one another. The, the, the warmth and affection that they feel for one another is unique in the epistles. And so stuff like this that gives us sort of an insight into that relationship and a little bit more depth and clarity, it's not unimportant, even if it may be more everyday than the high theological concepts from which we've come. And we'll note that even in this mundane sort of update that he's giving, news that he's giving on what travel plans are in the future, even in that material, Paul is going to weave a lot of the same theological concepts and, and, and exhortations that he's given them so far, he's going to weave them right into this material as well. And so my point this morning is simply this. Uh, there's no novel, big theological claim here to, to unpack, no controversial material to make sense of. 
we ought to emulate and honor faithful exemplars of Christian selflessness within the church. That's my point this morning. We ought to emulate, imitate, and honor, celebrate uh, these faithful examples of Christian selflessness and humility in the church. I'll essentially have three points. In the first, uh, I want to look at the update that Paul sort of gives on his journey. So sort of, sort of a missions update there from Paul. Uh, in the second, I want to look at these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus uh, and how it is that we should emulate these men. And then in the third, uh, we'll briefly look at sort of the, the final imperative of this text. What is it that Paul tells them to do in this text? So first, Paul's giving updates. So we can look back through the book of Philippians, and he's kind of touched base a couple times and let them know, here's some things I want you to know about how I'm doing. If you remember, what's Paul's position right now? Where is he? Well, he's in prison, presumably in Rome, but we know that he's in prison, writing this to the church at Philippi from prison. It's evident from this letter that the Philippians really want to know how Paul is doing. Remember how he describes them early in the book. They're, they're fellow partakers with him of grace. They're partners with him in the gospel. And so it's evident from this book that the Philippians really have a vested interest in Paul. They've given to Paul and supported Paul from the very beginning, and now they really want an update on how he's doing. He's in prison. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he free? Is he still in chains? We don't know. So the Philippians are eager to know how Paul is doing. He says towards the end of the book uh, that he's thankful how they've revived their concern for him time and again. And it's also evident that Paul, for his part, really wants to know how they're doing. So Paul takes a vested interest in the Philippians. He says, I hope to send Timothy because I want to be cheered by news of you. I, I want to know how you're doing. It's also evident that the Philippians really want to know how Epaphroditus is doing. So Epaphroditus is one of them coming from the church of Philippi and they've given him a letter to take to Paul and he apparently fell sick either when he arrived in Rome or on the journey to Rome. And so Epaphroditus is aware somehow that the people at Philippi know he's ill. They know he's sick. They know that they've heard that he's even at the point of death and they don't know how he's doing. So they are eager to find out how is our brother doing. We sent him to you and we, we don't know. We, know. we found out that he was sick. So presumably Epaphroditus is on the journey. He's got companions with him. Uh, he falls ill on this journey of some hundreds of miles from Philippi to Rome. And then one of the companions or more goes back and gives the news to the church that, hey, he's fallen ill, he's not doing well, but they're going to continue to Rome. Did he make it? Is he alive? They don't know. So the Philippians are eager to know, how is Epaphroditus doing? And Epaphroditus really wants to know how the Philippians are doing. Uh, he's worried. He's distressed. He's just survived a near-death illness. And what is worrying him? He's distressed that they're distressed. He knows, they know that I'm sick, but they have not received an update since I've gotten better. I want them to know how I'm doing. I want them to be well. I hope they're not worried unduly on my part, says the guy who's come hundreds of miles and fallen ill near to death. So, the, the, the harmony, the, the relationship, the, the, the love and affection, the desire, the eagerness to know how they're doing and see one another, all of that is evident in our text and throughout the book. This love and affection between Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the church at Philippi. And so, Paul wants to give them expectations on this front. Uh, when will we see Paul again? When will we see Epaphroditus again? When will we see Timothy? Paul wants to give them expectations on these notes. So think of when you have a dear friend, and this is a lot more common in our society, when you have a dear friend that is far away, that lives far away from you, and that friend is coming to visit. 
There's, there's anticipation, there's excitement, you're ready to see them, you, you long to see their face and hug them and spend late hours talking and catching up and how have you been doing? I heard this happen, how did that go? The anticipation that surrounds the visit of a dear friend. And that's in a time where we can text each other, phone calls, FaceTime, for Android users, FaceTime is a thing that you can do where you can actually call a person and see their face while you're calling them. Um, but we, I mean, we have, we have FaceTime capabilities. And think still of how eager you are, how happy you are, how much you anticipate seeing a dear friend after a long absence. Now put yourself in their shoes. No FaceTime, no phone calls, no text messages. You get letters. And those letters are significantly delayed to the actual events that they describe. And you just heard that your dear brother that you sent over to Paul has fallen ill near to death. And now you know you're just going to have to sit there and wait on news of him for months and months and months. Truly a different time period than that in which we live. So imagine the anticipation, the eagerness, the longing that they have for news of their brother. All you've had is written correspondence. So the prospect of seeing this dear friend again would be glorious. And so Paul is going to do what? Let's look back at our text. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Okay, so Timothy's coming soon from when they received the letter. Okay? Also, Paul himself, look at verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord shortly, I, will come, I myself will come also. So Paul is also going to visit them. So Timothy's coming soon. Paul's coming soon. Epaphroditus, 25. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. So presumably, the church of Philippi sends Epaphroditus to Paul with a message of how they're doing and some sort of gift, and he makes reference to this elsewhere in the letter, some sort of gift or, or ministry or service to Paul's need there. And so what's Paul going to do? He's sending Epaphroditus back. Why? Epaphroditus has been longing for you all. He wants to see you again so desperately. He wants to set you at ease and you can see him and see that he is well. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus to them, the one who bore this letter to them. A quick note here, Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. Interesting little thing that Paul puts in there. I hope to send Timothy to you. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. Uh, what's happening here? Well, it seems like Paul's way of doing what James commands more famous, famously in his epistle, uh, not presuming on tomorrow, right? Like not uh, just assuming and boasting that this is what I'm going to do tomorrow, but realizing that only if the Lord wills, I will do this or I will do that. So what James says, he says, don't say I'm going to go to some town and buy and sell and get gain, but say, if the Lord wills, I will go to this place or that place and do this or that. What's James getting at there? Saying, don't, don't just rely on yourself and your assumptions that things are going to keep going swimmingly for you. Realize that your, your life, the events of your life, your family, your friends, your, your career, everything that you have is in the hands of providence. You are frail, and you are in God's hands. And so, when you hope to send Timothy, do so in the Lord Jesus. Uh, now, if the Lord wills, that sort of has survived in our Christian vernacular. Right? People say, oh, well, Lord willing, I'm going to do this or do that. Uh, but a phrase like this hasn't really survived as well. Oh, yeah, I hope in the Lord to do that. Might be an interesting thing to make a comeback. But he gives a reverential nod to God's providence here and the frailty of human planning. He's going to do this later in the text as well. Look at verse 24. We just read it a moment ago. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
So he does the same thing in regard to his visit to them. I, I trust in the Lord that I will come to see you. Now Paul is acutely aware of this this matter that his life is frail and his decision-making can only go so far and that all this is in God's hands. Why? He's in chains. So he says, as soon as I see how it will go with me, I trust in the Lord that I will come to see you also. So Paul's acutely aware, I have no control over when I'm going to come see you. Uh, the plans that I make to come see you, they are truly in the Lord's hands and not in mine because my hands are in chains. And also with Epaphroditus. The church of Philippi sends Epaphroditus to Paul. Okay, great, we're sending Epaphroditus. He will go from here to there. He falls ill and nearly dies in that service to the Lord. So, doubly aware is Paul that we can make our plans to visit and to go here and to go there, but we must remember to rely on providence. For Paul himself, will he be delivered from prison alive? Will he be delivered from prison by death? He doesn't know. So he will send Timothy as soon as he finds out how it's going to go with him. Now, it's interesting that Paul is holding on to Timothy until Paul finds out how things are going to go for Paul. You get that? I will send Timothy to you as soon as I see how it will go with me. Now, Paul's boldness in the face of trial is clear. Uh, his Christian boldness bona fides are substantial. He's been through it, and he's just said in Philippians 1, I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Full courage, boldness. Paul isn't weak and, and, and timid. He doesn't quail in the face of trial and suffering and persecution. However, he wants to keep Timothy with him until he finds out what his fate will be in the situation. And we see this elsewhere in Paul, 2 Timothy. When Paul is nearing the end of his life and he seems to know it, what does he tell Timothy at the end of the letter? Make every effort to come to me quickly. So Timothy's not with him, and Paul is nearing the end of his life in 2 Timothy, and he says to Timothy, please, come quickly. Make every effort. Be diligent to find a way to come to me as quickly as you can. Bring Mark with you. Bring my cloak. Bring the books. Bring the parchments. Paul goes on to say that in all his hardship, the Lord stood with him, strengthened him, he was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his kingdom. Paul's faith in Christ isn't wavering because of his situation. He's firm in his faith in Christ. And yet, in Philippians, he wants Timothy to stay with him. In 2 Timothy, he wants Timothy to come to him when he's in these sorts of situations. What does this mean? It should not be interpreted, therefore, that Paul doubts Christ's protection of him or Christ's fellowship with him in his suffering. Not that Paul is too weak. He needs Timothy by him. I highlight this to emphasize this. When you're in trial, when you're suffering, the Lord does not despise your need for earthly companionship. Well, your, your desire to have your brothers and your sisters close by you in suffering, that doesn't mean you trust Christ less. Uh, Paul reiterates himself at the, end, the very end of 2 Timothy. Listen to this. This is the closing of the letter. He's already said, make every effort to come to me quickly. Just a few verses before. Listen to him in the closing of the letter. Greet Prissa and Aquila. Greet the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. 
Eubulus greets you, also Putin's Linus, Claudia, and the other brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. So in these greetings at the close of the letter, one more time, he puts in an appeal to Timothy. Uh, Make every effort to come before winter. Come quickly. Paul, again, this is 2 Timothy, seen as Paul's sort of swan song, and you see him almost pleading for Timothy's companionship for Timothy to be next to him as he's proclaiming his boldness in Jesus Christ to deliver him and strengthen him and rescue him. So if the Lord gives us the chiefest of his servants, perhaps, Paul himself, in one breath, boldly proclaiming his faith in Christ, and in the next, pleading with Timothy to come and be with him, Christian, your weakness, your frailty, your neediness for your fellow Christians around you, that's not a sign of lack in faith toward Christ. Lack of trust in Christ. That sort of dearness, affection, warmth, that is a gift from Christ to you in your suffering. For it is Christ's own bride that you long to be with. Christ has made us each members of one body together. So he doesn't despise your need for your fellow members. Christ has given us to one another as gifts for each other's comfort and suffering. So if you find in yourself a discouragement in trial, a darkness that would creep in and have you, and you find that you are soothed by the presence of God's people, grasp onto that. Hold onto that. It's a temptation for many to flee the presence of God's people in suffering. So we fight that by holding tightly to the saints, for we are God's gift to one another in suffering. And it's obvious that Paul felt this way. If we look forward to the last verse of the chapter, what does he say about Epaphroditus? He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This church has been so faithful to Paul. They've supported him from day one. What could possibly be lacking in their service to him? Nothing except their physical presence with him. That's what's lacking. You have done so much for me. You've supported me since day one. And I'm glad that Epaphroditus has come to complete that thing that's lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is, see, there's a gap here of your physical absence from me. Epaphroditus is now with me to fill that void, to complete what's lacking in your service to me, to give me a physical representation of your love for me, a personal embodiment of the warmth and affection that we feel for one another is Epaphroditus to me right now. And so this this dearness, this affection, this sincere warmth they feel for one another just flows through in this text. So Paul is going to send Timothy so that he knows how they're doing. He's been commending them to stand strong in the defense and confirmation of the gospel before the world. Uh, He's commended them to be uh, harmonious and and unified and have a single-mindedness about them. And so Timothy is going to visit them uh, so that Paul can be cheered by news of them. Uh, Paul wants to know, how are you doing in this matter? I'm going to send Timothy so he can bring me a good report of your unity and your harmony and that you are indeed standing side by side in the defense of the gospel. So, Paul is sending Timothy to get news of them, but it's not just for their sake. Look what Paul says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Paul says, you're going to be cheered, you're going to be gladdened, church at Philippi, by the news you're going to get from us, but I want Timothy to go to you so he can bring back news that will, that will make me glad in my imprisonment. So Paul is wanting to hear that they are doing the very things that he is commending of them. To hear that they're walking in harmony, walking in love, walking in unity. And we ought also to be invested in one another's holiness in the same way. 
We see also later in the, later in the passage, again, we're just kind of doing, these are the updates that Paul's sort of giving, the, the, the visit plans that he's sort of establishing here. We haven't really gotten to the, the qualities that Paul highlights about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'll get there momentarily. One other thing we need to cover here is this illness of Epaphroditus and God's mercy to him. And not only to Epaphroditus, but God's mercy to Paul in lifting Epaphroditus back up to health. So apparently Epaphroditus became very sick, uh, perhaps on this journey, like we said. And regard- that's debatable, but regardless of the specifics of when he got sick and how they got the news, the point is, the church there has indeed received word of the illness. And Epaphroditus, in spite of the fact that he's just survived this near-death experience, is deeply concerned about them, concerned that they're unnecessarily worrying over him. But God had mercy on Epaphroditus. God raised up Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus wants to cheer the people at Philippi by highlighting God's mercy to him. And Paul wants to also call our attention to God's mercy to Paul. God's mercy on Paul was that God spared him from experiencing sorrow upon sorrow. So again, just highlighting how important to Paul. If anybody can go it alone, it's Paul. But when Epaphroditus is spared, Paul praises God. Again, despite the clear vision Paul has of eternal life that's awaiting Epaphroditus after death, Paul rejoices in God's mercy because Epaphroditus has been spared. And Epaphroditus had not been spared, Paul seems to think that he would have experienced exponential sorrow, increased sorrow, abounding sorrow. Again, just highlighting how important it is to Paul to have these comrades, these brothers, these supports while he is suffering. But I believe Paul is getting at more here in this text than just updating us on missionary travels. And, and, and it's more than just the back and forth between Philippi and Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul. I believe Paul is laying out here qualities, traits, characteristics in Timothy and in Epaphroditus that he wants these, these saints at Philippi to emulate and therefore that we ought to emulate. So, second point here is that we should emulate these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, this entire second point of the sermon is sort of implied So I'm going to hold forth examples to you, traits to you, characteristics to you that we see in this text. And I'm going to give you, give us, the charge to imitate these men. But if you look, Paul nowhere in our text tells the Philippians to emulate these men. He doesn't give that as a command. Imitate Timothy. Imitate Epaphroditus. Be like them. He does give them some commands. He says, receive these men. Right? Welcome them and honor these men. So honor them for these traits that I'm telling you. But I believe it's obviously implied by his descriptions of these men that the traits they exemplify ought to be characteristic of all God's people. Here's why I think that. Uh, First, these men embody a lot of the same attributes that we've seen already in the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 in Philippians. So you'll remember uh, we looked at Christ's example. He, he, he counted others more significant than himself. Uh, you're not to count, you're not look only to your own interests, you're also to look to the interests of others. Be like Christ in this regard. Uh, stand firmly side by side in the defense and proclamation of the gospel. Timothy and Epaphroditus are going to embody so many of the things that Paul has already told them to do and to be. Also, in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 17, you don't have to turn there, Paul's going to say, brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul says, imitate me and you closely watch, keep your eyes on those who are walking like we're walking. So I'm going to tell you and to tell me this morning, let's imitate these men. How so? What characteristics do they have? What things can we take away from these descriptions that we ought to do? I'm just going to give you a few traits that are highlighted in this text 
things that we ought to do in light of the example we have in Timothy and Epaphroditus. First, as regards Timothy, be uniquely concerned for the welfare of others. Okay, pulling that pretty much straight from the text. What does Paul say about Timothy? I have no one like him, uniquely. I have no one like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So in my opinion, this is the most important characteristic of Timothy in this text. I say that because it's exactly the same quality that Paul has been talking about since the end of chapter 1. Paul's clearly drawing from previous material that we saw at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Christ was held up as the great example of look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. And now Paul uses almost the exact same language to describe Timothy. He's not concerned for his own interest. He's genuinely concerned in your welfare, in the interest of Christ. So listen back to some of the language that we heard at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2 and just see if this sounds like what we've read about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Quote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And we actually see Paul do this very thing with Timothy. Paul says, I have no one like Timothy. Timothy is invaluable to Paul. He's so valuable to Paul that Paul's going, he is going to indeed eventually send him away. Why? Because he loves the Philippians. As much as he loves Timothy, he's going to send Timothy away in their interest. So we see these very same things that we've seen Paul commending to them. We see Paul exemplifying this. We see Timothy exemplifying this. And we see Epaphroditus exemplifying these things. Timothy's concern is genuine. He's genuinely, actually, sincerely concerned for the welfare of others. And I wonder, do you ever find yourself having to sort of force interest in the people around you? Does it ever feel artificial? You're really thinking about the things that you have going on, but you have to, you have to be interested in other people. So I gotta, I gotta pay attention here. You ever feel like that's forced? You feel like you're making sort of a, a pretense that you care for the welfare of another person when really you don't. May God spare us of that here at Emmanuel. May we be genuinely interested in one another's welfare. Uh, wholeheartedly, it just arises from our hearts, genuine interest in your needs and not mine. How does that happen? The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in you that creates genuine interest in the welfare of others where once there was only selfishness. It's a miracle. That's God working in you to will of his good pleasure. So may God do that in us. May he make our interest in one another genuine, from the heart, heartfelt. This is a well-established rule for elders in the church that they serve willingly and not out of compulsion, right? Willing service, heartfelt service. Uh, it arises from my heart. I, I'm not compelled to do this. I do so willingly. Uh, the world so often complains about hypocrisy among Christians. If you ask the average uh, de-churched person on the street what their biggest beef is with Christianity, that's often going to be the case. Uh, Christians are hypocrites. May we not prove them right. May we be and act as we seem. Like, may we really be what we seem to be. May we genuinely have interest in these things we say we're interested in. May God grant us to share this genuine concern of Christ for one another. Uh, 
one more quick note that I want to make on this, on this point. Look closely at the text here. Paul says, I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So what is it that people ought to be concerned with? It's your welfare, the welfare of others. Um, he keeps going. They all seek their own interests. Not Timothy. Not those of Jesus Christ. So the thing they should not be seeking, should not be concerned for, the thing that we should not be concerned for is self. Right? The thing that we should be concerned for is described in two different ways here. I have none like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, the welfare of the saints. And then they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. So in this text, two things occupy a synonymous place in Paul's mind. The welfare of the saints and Christ's interest are the same thing. That should, be, that should be comforting, saint, to know that Christ's interest, the thing that Christ is regarding, is concerned with, is your welfare. That's what Paul is urging, Tim, or, or noting that Timothy is interested in. He's saying here, Christ takes an interest in the Philippian saints. And therefore, Christian, Christ takes an interest in you. Christ's interest is your welfare. And also, because the saints are Christ's interest, they ought to be your interest as well. Uh, you ought to be interested in the same thing Christ is interested in. You ought to regard what Christ regards. The saints, your brothers and sisters. Precisely because that is Christ's interest, it should be your interest as well. And Timothy had that mind in him. And so it's a comfort for us to know that Christ takes a special interest in our welfare. He regards us. He is concerned for us. But that ought to urge us on to take a greater interest in one another's welfare. Precisely because our Lord takes such a, 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 an interested regard in your well-being, I ought to be concerned with it as well. So we want to be uniquely concerned for the welfare of others, like Timothy was. Also, Another note about Timothy. We ought to have a Christian character that is recognized as genuine. Sort of flowing out of what I just mentioned. Uh, what does Paul say about Timothy here? 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. Timothy's proven character. Now, for, to be a companion of Paul was to go through extreme hardship. And to, to survive that and to still be faithful and for Paul to say of you, you know his proven worth. That's saying a lot. There's a lot of mileage in that statement. And we already saw this in terms of uh, his concern for the Philippian saints, uh, but this is in regard to consistent faithfulness. Tested quality, where so many might lose heart, uh, where there are a lot of Demases out there who, because of the love of the present world, have forsaken Paul. There are few that are true, that are faithful, like Timothy. Uh, the trials of life, the cares of the present world, will cause the hearts of many to grow cold. But Timothy... Timothy was traveling with Paul and Silas when the church at Philippi began, so the saints at Philippi had seen Timothy, they knew Timothy. Timothy had been there with them, with Paul, and now they know Timothy's still right there with him. And we already looked at 2 Timothy, uh, the end of Paul's life. Who's there? Timothy. Paul saying, Timothy, I want you here. What's that show? Timothy was there the whole time. Timothy was faithful to Paul the whole time. And that's the one thing that will prove a person's character. Yes, trials, but also time. 
Are you a flash in the pan? Are you like the seed that was sown and sprung up quickly with joy, but then was choked out and and burned because it took no root? Or uh, do you have proven worth? Is there longevity to your discipleship with Christ? Uh, Are you faithful to Christ over a long period of time? That's what we want. We want to be old, righteous oaks in our churches one day. That at the end of our lives, we would still hold the faith with as as fervent and hot a passion as we did when we first believed. We don't want to fall away. We don't want to be Demas. Remember Lot's wife, the Bible says elsewhere. We don't want to lose heart in trials. We want to be consistent like Timothy was. When we are tried by fire, we want our faith to come forth as gold. Uh, I don't know how many of you are, know the name Ron Hamilton. Some of you might. Uh, I grew up in church singing songs by was a, a guy named Patch the Pirate. Uh, he actually just passed away recently in the last like, week or two. Uh, but he had a song called you know, it was God Never Moves Without Purpose or Plan When Trying a Servant or Molding a Man. And in the chorus he says, When I am tried and purified, I will come forth as gold. So as life tries us, will those trials be purifying or consuming? Either the trials burn up our faith and show that it was never legitimate, or they purify our faith, burn off the dross, and reveal pure gold. That's what we want. Proven worth. Proven faithfulness. Our faith to be vindicated by our trials, not destroyed by them. That was true of Timothy. His Christian character was genuine. It was proven. His quality was sincere. Lastly, with Timothy, uh, we want to adopt a teachable attitude as we seek out godly mentorship. Uh, Adopt a, a teachable attitude as we seek out godly membership. Now, it should be noted that when we, then we see here, when he says, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. We're not just talking about like general life guidance. Like the kind of thing I mentioned earlier with, you know, you're meeting with an engineer and talking to him about engineering. That's not the sort of mentorship we have in mind here. Not even how best to parent or how best to uh, be a husband or a wife. Uh, ultimately, how was Timothy a son to Paul? in his service with Paul for the gospel. That's the sort of father-son, mother-daughter, mentor-protege relationship we have in mind here. Gospel service. So elder saints in the church, mature saints in the church, this ought to be your testimony towards less mature, younger saints. Imagine investing hours of, of, of intentional, direct conversation about holiness and the gospel and the Christian life into a younger saint who needs wisdom, who needs an example of stability. And then you get the privilege of seeing them progress, grow. You see God causing growth where you planted and watered. God is giving increase. Imagine the joy, the pride that comes from that sort of relationship. Don't rob yourself of that by thinking, oh, I don't really have anything to share. Of course you do. Young people are morons. They need wisdom. They need examples of stability and, and, and a sure road forward. They need what you have to offer. Mature women. Are there any young women that you could take an interest in, invest in, spend time with, for the sake of the gospel, where you could look at her and say, I count her as a daughter. And she would rise up one day and call you blessed for your investment in her. Older men, more mature men. Are there young men where you could look at them and say, I count him as a son. And he would look at you and say, I count him as a father to me. Uh, Do you merely complain, older saints, at the foibles of the younger generation, or do you take opportunities to help correct them, 
offer wisdom, offer guidance to them. When Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2, this is the exact sort of father, son, mother, daughter, spiritual relationship that he is urging them to. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so, train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be, may not, may not be reviled. Likewise, older men, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. These are the sorts of multi-generational relationships that ought to thrive in a church body like ours. The older saints ought to have this attitude that Paul has toward Timothy. He's like a son to me. She's like a daughter to me. Why? Because you get along and you share a lot of interests? No, because we have served alongside one another for the sake of the gospel. And so God has knit our hearts together. Now let's more briefly look at Paul's commendation of Epaphroditus. What do we see from Epaphroditus? Two things I want to highlight. One, we ought to foster a sense of camaraderie in the work of Christian warfare. We ought to foster a sense of camaraderie, partnership, in the work of Christian warfare. I mean, what a wonderful commendation Paul gives here of Epaphroditus. Listen to this description. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. What great descriptors those are of Epaphroditus' character. So first, Paul refers to him as a brother. And I'll just say very practically, uh, this can seem sort of hokey to some people. Oh, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. How you doing, brother? One thing that I noticed when I started coming to Emmanuel, though, is I had this sense that when the men of this church referred to me directly as brother, they seemed to really mean it. And that's been my experience here. When a brother says, love you, brother, that's not like a throwaway term, right? It's not just like a Christian sort of thing to say. We mean that when we say it. When I say, she is a dear sister, we mean that. She is a sister to me. I love that brother. Why are we saying that? Just to sound more Christian? No, because that guy's my brother. I love him. We ought to mean these sorts of things when we say them. Hey, he's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. This ought to remind us of chapter 1, how the Philippians were fellow partakers with Paul of grace. Do you hear these descriptions? Brother, co-laborer, fellow soldier. Uh, this is a, a unity, a depth of, of harmony between these men that defies any challenge. Right? Just a, a, a stable, firm, solid harmony that exists between these brothers. As fellow soldiers, we fear no danger. Uh, as fellow workers, we shun no labor. To belong to Christ is to inherit these sort of brothers and sisters to serve alongside you in the gospel. So take advantage of them. Uh, take part in the love and affection that is supposed to surge through this body as members of one body of one another. Our love and harmony ought to exude because of our union with one another through Christ. Paul sees Epaphroditus as a guy next to him in the trench digging together, fighting together. They're taking fire together. They're helping one another. They're saving one another. They're advancing together and never retreating. This is what Christian brotherhood, sisterhood is supposed to look like. We are fellow workers together towards a common end. We are fellow soldiers together in a common battle. We all share our enemies. We all share our allies. We are fellow soldiers together. And if all this sounds too dramatic, just remember 
that you are right now engaged in a war of cosmic proportions. There are principalities and powers far beyond you that have set their will against you, that want you eternally dead. Who's going to help you? Christ, of course, and the brothers and sisters that he gives you. The army that he has placed you in will help you. Your fellow soldiers. And why does he feel this way about Epaphroditus? Well, last trait that I'll highlight. He stays the course with unwavering consistency. Epaphroditus stays the course with unwavering consistency. He was their messenger to Paul's need. You're talking a journey of hundreds of miles here, and this guy signed up. I'm guessing. I'm guessing he wasn't compelled into it. Seems like the kind of guy who said, I'll go. Oh, someone needs to go visit Paul. Can I go? You might die. Yeah? If the Lord wills. Just his being a willing messenger speaks to how deeply he loved both the Philippian church and Paul and his Lord. He fell ill, he nearly died, and after his recovery, what's he concerned with? His church back home, their well-being. I hope they're not unduly worried because of me. I want to go see them again. You just died on this journey. Can I go again? They need me. They need to see me and know that I'm well. This is a man of unwavering consistency. And he did it all because of Paul's need. And now he's going to do it again because of the Philippian church's need. So, we are to emulate such brothers. We are to be like them. We ought to be like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. As the author of the Hebrews says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate the faith of your leaders. Imitate the faith of your examples. And finally, I'll close with this. The imperative that he gives to them at the very end. He very nearly died for the work of Christ Risking his life to complete was lacking in your service to me. Verse before that, so receive him in the Lord and honor such men. So not only are we to be such people, but we are to honor such people that are currently around us. So, brother, sister, may I give you from what Romans says, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. We are to honor one another. If you see a brother, you see a sister that exemplifies Christian virtues, tell them. Encourage them. Not not out of flattery or vanity, but in order to encourage them to keep it up. Brother, sister, I just want to let you know you have been so encouraging to me in this way, in that way, in this way here. So I just want to tell you how much of an encouragement you are to me and to tell you to keep it up. What is that? That's honor. And what sort of church would this be with a free exchange of that sort of honor? Just back and forth, outdoing one another and showing honor to one another. Where does sin get a foothold in a community like that? Uh, How does envy creep in when we're trying to outdo one another in showing honor? So let me tell you, Emmanuel Church, emulate men like Timothy, men like Epaphroditus, And then as you see people around you that are successfully doing that, show them honor however you can. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. And may we embrace the discipline of giving honor to others as a Christian duty. So, it's my hope that by looking at these examples of faithfulness and selflessness, we can easily see we haven't strayed from the message of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're counting one another's interests more important than our own. We're stooping, we're condescending, we're giving to others instead of taking for ourselves. This is still the message that Paul is trying to get across here. And there's a reason that these things have been highlighted over and over again in the book of Philippians. It's because Paul brings them up over and over again. And so, church, let's try to emulate men like Timothy and like Epaphroditus, and then as we see those people around us, let us honor them, these faithful examples of Christian service. Let's pray.
Lord, we are so naturally selfish. Uh, It was prayed earlier in the prayer of confession how much we are consumed with ourselves and not others. God, we we don't want to be that way. We don't want to be selfish. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like Paul. We want to be like Timothy. We want to be like Epaphroditus. So God, please help us. Create in us those things which please yourself. Lord, if you don't do it, we're hopeless. So Lord, please, make us the sort of people that that please you. Make us people that are worthy of honor and then make us people that love to share honor. Do this through your spirit in the name of Christ. Amen.